Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In this episode, I'm speaking with Rob Law, Executive Officer of the CVGA, or the Central Victorian Greenhouse Alliance. We're going to be talking today about alliances and collaborations between local councils. And I promise it's not as boring as it sounds. After years of careful and persistent efforts of the CVGA, they have been instrumental in helping over 13 councils in Victoria come together to commit to 10 years worth of renewable energy purchasing and also the installation of electric vehicle charging stations to connect small towns to the ever-increasing cohort of EV drivers. You might remember Rob from the episode called Endgame, which came out in January of this year. Rob was working on a podcast with Kyla Brettle about climate. Rob has also been involved in the team that's been working locally to get our shire and region to zero net emissions. Also, interestingly, for those who've been following the show for a while, the CVGA was started over 20 years ago by another person you might recognise, Terry White. He was way back at the start of season two. So look up those episodes if you're interested in any of those links. I'll put links to those episodes, obviously, in the podcast description and the show notes and also on the website saltgrasspodcast.com. The other thing about this episode is that I'm using it as a launching point for the next four episodes, which are going to be about a region that's a five-hour drive north of Castlemaine, which is Mildura. So the Mildura region has been one of the councils that's been involved with the CVGA and has been working with Rob and other councils to achieve this bulk buy of renewable energy for council use and also electric charging stations. So I've been up to Mildura a couple of times this year and there's been some really interesting things going on up there. So the next few episodes following this one with Rob will be all about that region. So look out for those. As ever, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara Country. Jara Country is the traditional home of the Jarjarung people who have been the custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Salt, salt, of the earth, people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. Can you tell us what CVGA is and how it started and how it's grown? Sure. So the Central Victorian Greenhouse Alliance is a regional organisation of local governments and it's existed for 21 years now. So it's sort of managed to ride through, you know, a whole range of flux in national and state climate action over the years and be really consistent over those 21 years in coming together and doing stuff at a local level. It was formed by a local man, Terry White, who I believe your listeners know. Yes. And he, in, with a few other people, got together and recognised that there was, off the back of the millennium drought in 2000, that there was a need to kind of look at doing things at a regional level. So rather than just each council and each community doing things by themselves and doing it alone, that they could actually do a lot more and have a lot more impact if they came together. So 
that was the origin of it. And over the first couple of years, it started to formalize and became a, a not-for-profit organization. And that's what it is today. It's been able to work through those 21 years and do some really great things through collaboration and what we call collaboration, which is where you collaborate and compete against each other and you know have this nice, healthy sense of wanting to do better than the other council or other community. Yeah, sure. So my understanding of it was that it was largely council and shires collaborating, but is it groups that are not council are so, also involved? Yeah, so originally it started off being quite a, a motley group of, of organisations. It was a few councils. It was the what was called the, the Catchment Management Authority. I think even Bendigo Bank was involved and the university. So it was quite diverse, but for the last 10 years at least it's been local governments. And so it's 13 local governments in our region. And does that simplify what the goals are if it's just local governments? Yeah, there's something nice about um, all of them being the same type of organisation that speak the same language and they all have the same risk profile and processes and they're all kind of a bit more patient with their own bureaucracies and that sort of thing as opposed to trying to get all of these different types of organisations to come together and, and do stuff. It's quite challenging. Yeah, definitely. So what's the geographical size of this collaboration? So it's quite a large area of Victoria. It's about a third of the state and it covers from sort of Bendigo across to Ballarat and up to Mildura. So there's there's 13 councils in that region. And it's really interesting because it's quite, you know, it's very diverse politically and the demographics across that region are very, very different from down in the south where you've got, you know, probably more gentrified communities like Castlemaine, but also very small rural shires and very conservative farming towns and and politics across that whole region are really quite interesting and diverse. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be speaking with the mayor of Mildura about their involvement. And I was not expecting Mildura to be as progressive in their council as they are, but I've got an extended interview with the mayor and their sustainability officer, which I think will unpack some of that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think one of the challenges working in this kind of organisation over the years has been how you frame work around climate change because it is such a diverse region politically. And I think one of the things that I really like about this model is that it, it manages to find that common ground across a very large region and a very diverse group of actors. And they might not all be on the same page in terms of climate change, but there's reasons why they're all involved in doing things together, whether it's because they support renewable energy or because they care about water. There's a whole range of different intersections that bring them there. And so just for listeners who are not from Victoria, the geographical sort of size of what we're talking about from Castlemaine, Ballarat's an hour's drive southwest ish and then Mildura's about a five-hour drive north from us the distances for me sort of become a little bit relative because I'm often crisscrossing all over the place but I think (laughs) the the distance from where we live in Castlemaine to Mildura five and a half hours drive is, is a good sort of idea of the size of the region and before the pandemic a lot of these councils weren't using the internet very well so I often had to drive for four or five hours to do a half an hour Council briefing, so I'm very really? pleased that. <laughs> wow! So Zoom has been a great thing for. And for I noticed of. down below there's an electric vehicle. Is that yours? It is. So we bought that for the organisation a week before the pandemic hit. So it pretty much sat in the garage for the, oh, for the rest of that time. Disappointing. Um, but but it, we were also limited at the time by lack of charging infrastructure in regional Victoria. So we had this electric car, but we couldn't actually drive around to our councils. Anyway, <laughs> so I know that that's one of the projects we'll be talking about in a minute that you have subsequently opened up across all these shires, electric charging stations in strategic towns. That wasn't just solely for your own purposes. It was <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of personal benefit in there, I think. But yeah, I think it's really trying to make sure that regional communities aren't left behind as we transition to 
electric transport. And that's interesting because prior to those charging stations going in the ground, a lot of those communities and councils were really of the view that this was a city thing and not really going to affect them much. But since it's happened, it's, it sort of seems to have opened up a huge area of curiosity and interest now. So it's been a really good advocacy tool just to have those charging stations actually go in the ground. And yeah, it's been a good thing. The main purpose of the organisation is to bring these councils together to collaborate on climate change with the view that you can achieve a lot more and have a lot bigger impact if you work together. There is something inspiring about zooming out to the regional level when you're working at a local level you can often sort of feel a little bit like you're slaving away at this very futile or very big problem of climate change but i think once you connect up regionally it seems to be at that level that you really start to see how you can make a difference and we see that a lot in our members and our the people that are involved with our alliance is that they they do feel this motivation that comes from being part of this bigger collaboration than just the work that they're doing at the individual council level Absolutely. I think, I mean, my show focuses entirely on what people can do locally. And I think it's why the show has appeal outside of our small region. But the idea is, if everyone's doing this stuff together, then we will see really significant change. But it can. And I've been involved in the local ZNet movement and all of this sort of stuff. And it can feel like, oh, even if we achieve it here, what does it matter if the rest of the world is not doing the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing that you start to see at a regional level is the ripple effect. And you can see how not only what you're doing locally affects the region, but how your region actually impacts other regions too. So that's the excitement, I think, about that level of working together. Once you go to the state level, it gets a bit harder to see how you kind of See through the politics. Yeah, and how your actions influence other actions. But at the regional level, it's a bit more tangible, I think. I guess you also get to see the eyes light up moment, that moment where people go, oh, this is something that could really happen here. And it becomes personal and it becomes relevant to people who perhaps thought it was out of their reach or unachievable in their region. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a process of normalisation that goes on. You see, you know, another council or another town doing something and they're quite similar to your town or you can relate to them a bit better than you could say if, if the city of Darabin did something in Melbourne. So I think there is this process that starts off in one small area and then starts to balloon out from there and climate emergency declarations are one example of that we saw that start in the city but gradually it got picked up by a few rural councils and Mount Alexander our council declared one and then Mildura council declared one so that I think process of normalization is really important and I think the more that places can see relatable places to themselves doing stuff then that opens the door for them rather than jumping straight from something that Melbourne has done you know yeah. there needs to be stepping stones and so I think this model that the CVGA has is starting to be picked up elsewhere, like globally. So I suppose to start with, the model was picked up in the late 2000s by other regions around Victoria. So now Victoria, all of the councils in Victoria, and there's 79 of them, um, are part of these regional alliances that work together on climate change. And so over the years, we've, you know, more and more, we've all worked together to be quite a strong network statewide. And then in the last few years, that's gone into other states now. So we've had Queensland, WA and New South Wales all talk to us and learn about the model because they're in the process of setting these up in those states as well. So that's, that's really great. And also in places like Toronto, we've had calls from City of Toronto to investigate the model because they've been interested in it and even in California. So it's sort of starting to you know, ripple out from that simple idea 
that Terry had back in 2000. Oh, isn't he great? <laughs> it's interesting with Terry because he's been active for so long and he's still so passionate about making change happen. Yes, I know. It's Yeah, it's remarkable and how you managed to not just get frustrated at the pace of change. He is frustrated. <laughs> he's frustrated, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah a I lot mean, of us know, are frustrated. <laughs> exactly, I know. But I think you also, amidst the frustration, you can also see how that momentum has grown over the years. And mm-hmm. I think you've got to try to treat it a little bit like a game for your own sanity. Mm-hmm. You can start to see where you're winning and where you where you still got to go a fair way. But I think th- there's all these wins that are happening over the last few years, particularly that are pretty inspiring and help you rise up from the depression of just watching what happens at a federal level. Or, yeah. You know. And I think it's also really worth recognising how far we've come. It can feel like nothing's happening, mm. but actually seeds he planted 20 years ago. How long has it been? 21. 21 yeah. <laughs> years ago are now bearing such wonderful fruit. That's that metaphor of the person who plants the tree but doesn't expect to sit under the shade. Yeah. It's- yeah, you, you kind of just one foot in front of the other and never really not sure where something's going to go. But I, I think it's nice to reflect on when something has... Has really you know, worked. Has really worked and, and <laughs> yeah. led to much bigger things than you probably expected at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So there's two things happening. We mentioned earlier the electric vehicle charging stations, but there's also a a power group buy, basically. So there's, well, I'll start with that one because that's been the most intense and exciting project for me over the years because it's been going for about six years, this project, which is where all of the 46 councils have come together and basically entered into a 10-year contract for powering all of their facilities and their streetlights with 100% renewable energy. So that in itself is a complicated thing to explain and of how that works because it's not it's not that they're all generating their own renewable energy on site they've actually got a a contract with a wind farm in western victoria but there's a lot of background to getting to that point and it's a lot bigger than them just buying green power off the shelf it's sort of a, a commitment to renewable energy and it's a form of divestment they're ensuring that their money you know is not going to any fossil fuel projects in the state and it's also contributing to going beyond what the state and federal government set for their own renewable energy targets. So it's an important thing to have got to where all those councils have got 100% renewable electricity now. But, you know, huge, huge undertaking, huge collaboration. I think I counted back of the envelope, there's probably been about 4,000 decision makers involved in getting to that point. That's that's, huge. And that's, you know, really a result of all of these officers and council laws, but particularly officers working across the region, mm. across the state on this project. And, across you know, six years. Yeah, across yeah. six years at different points in time. And yeah. I did countless councillor briefings over the years to try to get councils to say yes to this and not just me, but all the officers doing all their own work to convince internally up the chain and through all those levels of council that this was something that was you know, safe, that it was something that was going to save them money, perhaps. It was something that was you know, good for ratepayers, all the different ways they had to prosecute an argument to convince councils that are pretty risk-averse to do something like this was, was huge. So, yeah, so it really was a, a huge collaboration and it's, it was led by City of Darabin Council in the end. So the alliances initiated it and facilitated it with all of the 46 councils, but Darabin Council were really important towards the end in, in doing all the work to get those contracts in place. So how did Darabin Council get involved? So they were part of our... So they're, they're part of the Northern Greenhouse Alliance in Melbourne. and So, so we, they're our neighbours basically to yeah, the south. Yeah, they are neighbours to so, the south but, in metropolitan Melbourne. Yeah. And so we, the Alliance has set up this this working group of all of these officers to come together and talk about this idea. And over a couple of years, we formulated the plans of how we're going to do it. And then we needed uh, a lead council to do the work and Darabin put their hand up to employ an officer that would really drive it, who knew his right. stuff with the energy market 
Hugh Butcher was his name and, and really amazing asset to have someone like that. There, there's probably nothing more complicated in the world than the energy market, I don't think. <laughs> and I think having someone that can navigate and explain and communicate that across, you know, so many different levels of... So not only negotiate the deal with the power people, but also then convince all the councils to sign on. Yeah, that's right. And so is yeah. that an alliance of alliances? So that's... Yeah, we, yeah, we do often <laughs> say that, but it does feel a bit Lord of the Rings. It's, um, <laughs> there, there is the, the alliance of the alliances. During that process, we would do the work of working with our members who we knew better at a more local level to know how to frame the arguments and how to sort of talk to the councils. Yeah. So particular. you'd go to a meeting in Darabin and talk about this bigger picture, the whole state, and then you'd go back to your individual councils and then talk to them yeah. as the representative of that. Yeah. And those officers would probably be involved at different points as well. But, you know, uh, the language that Darabin uses is very strong in climate emergency language. There's no way I would be using that language in some of our councils. So it was often making the case based on where I thought they were at. And that's the idea is that you find where the common ground is and how people are going to say yes to something and not get turned off by language or identity politics. Absolutely. I think that's really important. And did you find that different councils needed the financial argument and others needed the, I don't know, security argument or something? Like, was there... Yeah, I think, you know, it, it really, those councils who had declared a climate emergency, it was fairly straightforward. Not, not always easy, but fairly straightforward because they might have had an internal commitment to be... 100% renewable anyway, but those other councils where those things just didn't exist, it might have been around that they actually do like renewable energy because they're in a council that sees the benefit of large solar and, and wind. So, for example, Mildura has got massive solar farms going up. So, for them, it makes renewable energy is an obvious... Absolutely, yeah, that's right. So they, you know, they've seen a big, a big benefit to their communities and council for, for that sort of transition. But yeah, in other, in other cases, it was purely financial. It was sort of making the case that it would be, you know, the same cost as business as usual or slightly better, and and reassuring them about all those risks. So, because a lot of people, I mean, the old arguments still get trotted out that renewable energy isn't as reliable as the coal-fired burners that we're used to here and yeah. <laughs> that energy will flux too much and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, so. that's right. Uh, you find yourself in really weird debates sometimes doing these councillor briefings. <laughs> like I remember getting blamed. I did a presentation on this. I think it was at Swan Hill Council and one of the councillors who's not there anymore blamed me for the recycling crisis in China and I was sort of confused. Personally. As, as to, yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't know how it was relevant at all to what I was talking about, but yeah. nor did I understand how I was responsible for yeah. something at that level. I guess people who are not that familiar with the breadth of all the topics that come up around sustainability and climate then lump them all together and go, if you're talking to me about renewable energy, you must be <laughs> yeah, exactly. also right. right across waste. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the challenge of the language and the politics, particularly in Australia, is this how, you know, how it's so attached to your identity. You know, if you're talking about these things and you must be from the left and you try to move beyond that is really hard. But I think it's another positive about this model is that, you know, the alliance itself, the board is quite bipartisan. It's quite diverse politically members of the National Party, Liberals and Greens, they're all sitting around the table together and in a fairly unconfrontational way are making ambitions and decisions that are pretty much on the same page as each other. So I think that's the advantage of sometimes working at the regional level is you seem to be able to avoid some of that more toxic politics that happens both at a very local level and at a very higher federal level too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the power, just to 
clarify that the power that we're talking about is not to households or businesses. It's purely what the council uses for their own use. And a council starting to adopt things like electric vehicles in their fleets, things like yeah, that? Yeah, so, well, they are, but it's very slow. And I think it's <laughs> slow because of the state of electric vehicles in Australia. And we can very much blame federal government for that and a little bit state governments. But I think for local councils, we're really trying to push this view that the transition's happening and they should start planning for it now and that by 2030, at least 100% of their passenger vehicles, their light vehicles will be electric and then maybe by a few years later. For the council fleet. For the council fleet yeah. and hopefully for the community for new sales, but there'll yeah. still be those people driving cars that haven't converted yet, but definitely for, for new sales and for councils, definitely. It's harder when you talk about the waste trucks and the heavy vehicles, but there's technologies that are coming and that are there, but it's just a slower transition. But yeah. hopefully not and, and a bigger investment, I would imagine, yeah. to replace those vehicles. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the charging stations and mm -hmm. let's talk about where they've been installed and how strategic you were about which towns to put them in. Yeah. I've already seen people charging their electric vehicles in Castlemaine. But yeah, let's, let's talk about the map first. Well, maybe I'll talk about how it was when we started the project. Because yeah. when, we, when we started this, when we bought our electric car, for example, there was no charging options in our just region. just two years ago. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were options, but you'd have to stay overnight to charge. So yeah. not very viable if you're doing a trip a few hours away. So basically, we wanted to address the fact that there was a lot of interest in charging in the cities, but definitely not in the regions, in regional Victoria. So we formed this group and we called the project Charging the Regions and put the word out in expression of interest to councils right across the state. 55 councils joined in, which is pretty huge, to learn about what their role was in providing public charging infrastructure because councils always question what's their role versus what's the private sector. And we thought that there was a very good argument that councils need to be, you know, the ones out there creating this backbone infrastructure to really kickstart the EV transition because it's a chicken and egg thing with, with range anxiety and people don't want to buy an electric car if they think they can't leave the city. Yeah, well, I think Australia is such an interesting case for that, isn't it? Because we've got such big distances between our towns. Yeah. Range anxiety has been huge. So that's it. I mean, range anxiety is like, is, you know, price is a huge barrier, but range anxiety is number two. Tesla have put in their own charging stations strategically for where they think their people want to go. And then there's other private people trying to mimic the highway system but it's actually not linking the smaller towns. Yeah, that's right. And that's what we were trying to address, encouraging people off the main highway routes. And, and it's all well and good for Tesla drivers, but other EVs can use their chargers. So we wanted to make sure it was going to be putting in infrastructure that was for all types of cars or as many types of EVs as possible. And it's interesting digging into the history. Councils used to own the first petrol stations and pubs and pharmacies used to have bowsers out the front. So they were they were very different to what we've grown accustomed to with petrol cars where you go to a dedicated spot to fill up your car and then drive on. I think it's really trying to shift the way we think about charging is like you can put a charger anywhere effectively. So you may as well put them where people want to go and spend time. And hopefully that's not at a petrol station where you're forced to eat McDonald's or... You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't have many choices, spend, do yeah. you? <laughs> so we brought together a lot of councils under these co-benefits of regional tourism, of economic development, of sustainability and showing leadership, all those different things that they'd be interested in and argued the case that they have a role to play, particularly in the first few years and particularly in smaller towns where there's not a good business case for private companies to go and put them in the ground when there's less than 1% of cars on our road are electric at the moment. So they don't get used a lot, but they will. And it's interesting because it is the chicken and egg thing, isn't it? As soon as you put them in, you're going to see people 
with EVs going, oh, I can go to that town now. Yeah, I will. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's like honey's to a bee when you open up the app and you see a little orange flag which indicates a fast charger. If you drive an electric car, you just that's where you go and you'll definitely drive an extra 50 kilometres to avoid going to a slow charger if you can go to a fast charger, even if you stay there for, for longer. But yeah, I think it's part of the attraction is that you're you're allowing these towns to be included in the transition and it really is something that I've noticed is every time I go to charge, someone will come up from that's walking by that's really curious and want to know about them and I think that happens to every EV driver. I actually saw that. <laughs> I saw someone with a Tesla at the Castlemaine EV charging station, the new one. And, and he was there chatting and he looked really like he's used to people coming yeah, up to yeah, talk to right. him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a certain excitement that EV drivers have yeah. in the early adopters that want to talk about it. So they're all happy to. But it's, you, you know, the same questions you get asked over and over again. It's like, you know, how long does it take you to charge? How much does it cost? How far you can go? And I guess the answer is pretty different depending on what type of car you've got. But typically we're seeing people stop at these stations for half an hour. They usually pay about $10 for it. A top-up charge and that might get them a few hundred kilometers so it's still cheaper than petrol isn't it oh yeah vastly and for us you know i'll charge at home with my solar panels whenever i can and that's free and then just use those public charges when i'm needing to top up out on the road it's interesting i feel like europe and america and asia have adopted evs so much faster than us i feel like we're mm. still having conversations that they've had oh yeah 10 years ago <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> i think norway's 100 percent electric vehicles now i just read the other day really so, yeah which is remarkable but they've started <sighs> a lot earlier and this is what i meant about you know really needing to squarely blame the federal government because we have got very few models in australia of electric cars that there's no real incentives for bringing down the upfront costs. and Those countries waived the import tax fee mm. and all of that sort of stuff to help people That's right. get those yeah. EVs. Yeah. So, and I think the we don't have any vehicle emission standards in Australia, which really means that we're becoming a dumping ground for all of those polluting vehicles. And a classic case of that was in WA. I think they received a lot of the London cabs because London introduced those measures. And so we've ended up with these old inefficient <laughs> petrol vehicles driving around our cities. But, you know, I don't want to be too down and out about it. I think it's just something that you, you work through and try to encourage despite the federal government and charging is one element of that. But this is part of a whole big conversation about sustainable transport beyond electric cars. I think that's really important not to lose focus that it's also about moving away from private car ownership as well and, and moving away from car dependency. And even for small towns, you know, trying to encourage electric bikes and and walking and cycling and, I think, and electric public transport yeah as absolutely. well and yeah. car sharing and car sharing yeah yep. there's some really good models in our region bendigo's beehive group you know the villages that they're doing up there where they're trying to introduce more car sharing for electric cars so bendigo is a, a large regional city just half an hour north of us so they've got multiple sort of suburbs really and so have they divided bendigo up into villages as such yeah it's early days but they're basically creating this new platform which is an ambitious alternative to facebook where it's really about creating a strong share economy and that's called beehive it's called beehive yeah. yeah and and there's also hepburn down half an hour south of us who have been doing a secondhand electric vehicle bulk buy for some time now as we well. covered that too yeah. the good car company yeah. so that all these little things help but you know i think one of the silver linings of the pandemic and i don't want to talk it up too much because there's a lot of people still going through stuff with covid and things but i mm. think it really has helped people value walking and cycling infrastructure 
locally a lot more now. And I think councils as well have been responding to that. We've seen councils all over the state put up pop-up parks or they're putting in new infrastructure that they've got state and federal funding for for better walking and cycling. So when you're limited to your 5Ks, yeah, when you're in a hard absolutely. lockdown, you still have a park to go to. And yeah, and it's, it's really shown up the inequity of that because there's wealthy areas that have really nice places to walk and easy, nice shady routes in summer to get from A to B. And then in the poorer areas, you're really exposed to the elements and you're kind of... A lot more concrete. Yeah, and, and that idea of this is all about this bigger conversation, not just about electric vehicles, but this transition is all about... A whole bunch of other things it's also about urban forests and you know yeah, all yeah. The, what what makes us happy and healthy all these things that, that you need to do at a local level yeah when you're planning absolutely and hopefully the pandemic is also going to mean that some people are going to be able to stay with online meetings rather than driving five hours to get to a half hour <laughs> well, meeting yeah, as you used that's to do right, that's right. I, hope, <laughs> I definitely hope so for myself yeah i think definitely and i think there's already a shift away from you know global conferences and that idea of different professions needing to fly around the world for a two-day conference is is also something that was a huge emitter that's sort of been rethought and well people uh, do i mean it's a great excuse for a holiday isn't yeah, it and it's tax it. deductible so I mean, it, you miss out on a lot of those other you know <laughs> intangible human interactions but i suppose you can find them in other ways so back to the ev charging rollout charging the regions I think I asked this before, but we kind of skipped it. So how did you guys think about placing the EV charging points? Was it really considered? So with the Charging the Regions project, we're rolling out 23 stations across regional Victoria at the moment. And Mm -hmm. there's some in small towns like Oyin and Sea Lake and Robinvale, which are very, very tiny towns, but they're very far away from anywhere else. So they're really important to get that coverage. And so we worked with councils to try to work out how do you identify the best site for an EV public charger? And there's a range of different criteria, you know, you want it to be thinking about where it is in relation to other EV chargers, but you also want to make it visible. You want to make it close to amenities, public toilets and playgrounds if you can. And then there's a whole bunch of other considerations around the power of the site, etc. So there's a range of different criteria that councils have used to identify where to put these in the ground. And I think that's the value of working together is that you can think more strategically about it being a network rather than just each council going ahead and putting something in themselves. We recently drove to Mildura and back and we stopped at Witchy Proof. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's like there's one street, which is the main shopping centre. The Boulevard. (laughs) I didn't know it was called the Boulevard. That's nice. And so it's just this stretch of shops and it doesn't go for very long. It's a very small town. And then around the corner, they've got a beautiful green park, public toilets, and the charging stations. And we just stumbled yeah. across them because we we're like, oh, we need the loose. And then there's the yeah, charging there stations. And, and I was like, this is great. It is great. And <laughs> I think it is great because it, you know, it opens it up for those communities to think about it, that they're involved in this transition too. And there's a lot of excitement and pride, I think, that they've got one. And they'll just see more and more people driving all sorts of different types of electric vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's a brand new one that only went in a week or so ago. So you must have been <laughs> one of the first people to see it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and how nice is that? If you're stopping to not have to be in this concrete zone of a petrol station or a service station with fast food and not a green thing inside. Yeah, absolutely. But this EV charging stations, you've got this beautiful, even if you just sat in your car the whole time, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you have a beautiful park to look at. You could go for a walk. Yeah. You, you have the local shops, which are all very sweet yeah, and quaint and old school, proper small town shops. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. And it's just, it's nice. I think it's really nice. And you could do that for your whole trip around Australia. You'd never have to stop at a servo 
No, that's right. Yeah, you'd always maybe get to a pump better... up your tires. <laughs> yeah, you'd always get a better deal. I think. Are there but... air pressure pumps at the EV no, charging stations? But good, oh. good suggestion. But okay, no, great. not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Work on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did you first get involved with climate and yeah. sustainability and environment stuff? It's, I don't know why I was thinking about this the other day, but I was. And I, I, there's two things that stick out for me. One, one was probably being my dad growing up. And my dad was an architect, but he was also really involved in the 70s and 80s in Australia in this native garden movement and promoting moving away from agapanthus and, and exotic plants to valuing... Roses and geraniums. Yeah, and valuing indigenous and native plants. And, and so he forced us to learn plant names in the back of the car on the way to school. And I, really? And, my, <laughs> and I was always contrary and, you know, rebelled against it. And I didn't want to learn these names. I didn't see the point because it's like, why am I learning European names for Australian plants? And anyway... I was, was, was he of, talking about botanical names? So yeah, the Latin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> Correa Alba. And we'd have to learn all these sort of yeah <laughs> repeat them back to him that's great but i was laughing later on in life i went to tasmania and did a science degree in which i did botany and geography and i'm like damn he's he's kind of one he's, he's <laughs> he got <laughs> here you there I am learning plant names the other thing was that i came out of doing a music degree in my early 20s and i was really kind of burnt out it was a really intense time of introversion mm. and spending a lot of time by myself so i did a really amazing adventure as a young 21 year old and went to south america to ecuador and worked on conservation projects for five months over there. So mm. in the jungles and up in the Andes. And that for me was really my what hooked me into this whole other world of science, conservation, climate change. It all started back then. But it was also really interesting projects because they were about community-based conservation. So it was all about people and how people interact with the environment. And so that's what got mm. me interested in geography, human geography, and, and then ending up in this role, which is still about people and how we relate to where we live and our impact. So, yeah, so all those things co coalescing and, and I ended up in Tasmania and then I ended up in Darwin and I spent a lot of time in Darwin doing science and environmental related stuff. What sort of science was it? Pretty, pretty diverse. I was doing some very strange things in Darwin. One of the things about doing environmental science is you find yourself in really weird situations. I used to have to get up every morning and go off into the mangroves at 5am by myself with two dead birds on a stick <laughs> and I'd put them next to these derigony nests and then I'd sit there and I'd wait and I'd, and I'd had to do all these measurements about bird ecology that were pretty bizarre and pretty unusual. Yeah, right. But, you know, mangroves became became a real heart place for me. I, I really love mangroves now and they're not very nice environments and a lot of people would never go into them, it's let like alone... swampy, isn't it? Yeah, let alone value them. Yeah. There's mosquitoes, there's snakes, spiders. <laughs> crocodiles? There's crocodiles, yeah, yeah, yeah crocodiles. <laughs> And I was always on the, you know, smelling... Trying and you're to... carrying these two dead birds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and there's a smell that crocodiles have. So you really, like, when I get that smell, you just sort of... You the know, adrenaline climb a tree. Yeah. <laughs> get out of there. But So what were you carrying the birds for? Uh, it, it's convoluted, but it's basically... It was a bird ecology, behavioural ecology project that looked at how much a bird would value their offspring versus themselves. <laughs> oh, really? So, so would, they, would they risk themselves to go back to their nest if there was a predator by oh, their nest? So, so you put the dead bird near the yeah, nest to yeah. make the bird think that another bird's been killed the near their nest. That they were about to get their bird's eggs. And, so, and it was a yeah, very strange project. and Not one that I came up with, but one that I was asked to do that's really bird psychology isn't it and <laughs> yeah, and, right. and it, it goes yeah. into yeah. yeah well there's that but it it also goes into this age-old argument about whether or not animals are 
self-conscious or aware. Yeah. And exactly. so it's this really deep psychology <laughs> existential. Yeah, I know. And, you know, a lot of projection probably going on with the person that came up with it. But yeah, you do, you do find all yourself in all these interesting places. And, you know, I did did some time in Borneo in a conservation project in, in East Timor and, and a lot in Northern Australia. So really good fun when you're in your early 20s. And, and enough that I've kind of got it out of my system. I think I don't need to <laughs> yeah. do those sort of really exhausting pursuits anymore. But yeah. Anyway, long story short, I ended up back in Melbourne working for these Greenhouse Alliances. So I started in the Metropolitan Greenhouse Alliances before moving up here five years ago and took over this organisation. And what's your role officially here? Uh, it's executive officer, so CEO effectively. We have a board of 13 council council laws across the region one from each of those councils and and then we also have a number of staff that work on different projects one of them being joe captain which i think you've interviewed before yes, as well yep with mash yeah with yeah. mash so we get a lot of projects come in from grant funding and employ people as on a needs basis you started out as a musician and then you ended up in ecology and science and mm. now you're sitting at a desk behind a computer all day yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. do you do you still make music so, so I don't sit at a desk all day. I've got four days a week I do this job, but I do do a lot of music still and music for film primarily. And I did work on a film nearly two years ago now called The Magnitude of All Things, which was a Canadian film about climate grief mm. and very biased, but I, I love this film and think it's really amazing and that everyone should see it if they have a vague interest in climate change and dealing with these types of things. And because of COVID, it's been a really slow rollout across the world and it's been bubbling away in Canada and Europe and America, but it's finally been launched in Australia at the Sydney Film Festival in November. So you can go to it in Sydney. We're working on a plan to have it at the Theatre Royal here in Castlemaine, so that'll be good. And the owner of the Theatre Royal actually sang on the soundtrack, so she's got a vested oh, really? interest in showing it. Oh, there's a, there's a whole yep. community of That's people. Right. So yeah. where, where does the filmmaker themselves live? So they're Canadian. Her name's Jennifer Abbott, and she did a film called The Corporation back in 2000 that was all about corporations, obviously, and the ethics around the corporation. And, and so it really important film had a big legacy that came with it i think around rethinking capitalism and but this story is much more personal it's about her sister who died of cancer and whatever you tell anyone the plot of this film people will really want to see it but i think that's <laughs> the it it's the parallels between you know her grief around her sister and her grief around the planet and climate change but it's done in a really nice way it's very diverse in the viewpoints it goes to the amazon it goes to Greta Thunberg. It's got lots of different people in Australia talking about loss and, and how they're sort of rising up above that. So ultimately it's inspiring. It does, doesn't sound like it. <laughs> it's a, but it's, it's, it's not cathartic. a huge downer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I found it really cathartic working on it because, you know, it's, it's heavy in parts and it was very heavy making the music for it. But it was I came out the other end feeling much better for it. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Allowed you to sort of like go into what you're feeling a bit yeah, and release absolutely. it through the music. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Well, I look forward to seeing that. So what's in the works for the CVGA? What are you guys working on next? So the other project is Community Sparks, so looking at community batteries in our region. And we're looking at across eight different councils where these batteries could go and what sort of models we might have where the communities can own them and get benefits from them. So that's early stages and we're just really kicking that one off. We're just starting that with our main partners are Hepburn Wind, who have been very active in community energy for many years and lots of successes and the partner councils, so the eight partners. Do you feel like the councils that have been involved have had a good experience so far? That There's a lot of trust that's been built and now that these things have actually happened with the EV st stations and the power bulk buy, do you think that they're now more on board? Yeah, I think that's a good thing to 
reflect on is that over you know these things work because you you start small and you build trust over time and that trust is you know hard won and easily lost as they say but i think that councils particularly you know more recent years they've done some really great things together they did the largest street lighting upgrade project in australia in our region many years ago which can sound boring to other people but it's pretty significant in terms of emissions reductions to, so what did they do they changed so that, all the street yeah, lights about to... twenty-five thousand, i think street lights to led they were very energy intensive globes in, that were before that how many people does it take to change a light bulb i think is a good <laughs> question when you're doing these projects because they're, they're they become very complicated and there's so many different actors involved in actually changing a light globe. Yeah, but, but they're, <laughs> you they're, need an entire yeah. council and all of its staff to change yeah, exactly. a light globe. <laughs> but yeah, but they're huge, you know, big benefits from emissions reduction and councils saving themselves money. And also, you know, light output is actually better for biodiversity. And there's a whole bunch of other benefits too and safety and all those things. But, you know, as I say, not, not particularly exciting, but it's one of those things that built councils trust. And then they moved on to other things and in the renewable energy agreement that they've just done, these are things that show them that it's not just about an information sharing network. It's actually that they can actually do things greater than they could do by themselves. Mm. And so each time you kind of move on and you ask what's the next big thing and that's what everyone's sort of asking now. And a lot of that is still around council's own emissions, I suppose, in that it's looking at getting off gas for all of the councils in the region and across the state. And that's, you know, for big aquatic centres, that's really important to look at electrification and electrification. Of hot water services and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever is councils are using for, for energy and for heat mm. and steam and... Um, and kitchens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because really gas these days, a lot of people are still using gas heaters to heat the air and they don't have electric split systems. And gas hot water and gas cooking appliances, that's really the three things people use gas for, isn't it? Yeah, and for councils, it's all the heating systems around the pools and aquatic centres, the big one. And then electrification of, of council transport and all of that, as well as all the other stuff that's really huge around adaptation, which we haven't really talked about, but it's thinking about the councils really helping their communities protect against the risks of climate change and that covers every aspect of what council does and I think that's been a really big thing of what we try to do is try to really make the point that this isn't just a little issue that your sustainability officer has to deal with it's something that's right across the board that your CEO your finance manager your you know community development assets manager they all need to be thinking about climate change and they all need to be making decisions about climate change in what the work that they do So we really try to help articulate that and make it tangible for them that, okay, I'm managing these bridge upgrades or I'm managing this library. How can I do that in a way that's going to be most resilient to hotter and drier conditions and more extreme weather? And flooding. And flooding and all those things. So Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? The projections for our climate in this region are hotter and drier, but then simultaneously more flooding. Because when the rains come, they're going to come in bigger dumps. Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, ultimately you can dumb down all the climate science to that really it's just that message like the the conditions are changing it's going to be hotter and drier but we're going to have more extreme weather and need to be thinking about that in every decision we make so i guess a lot of the work we do you know is balancing work, focusing in on council's own operations but also out in the community and it's all well and good to help councils get to be carbon neutral but they're a very small sliver of the overall pie for it so of a, of a shire, of a shire or a region yeah, yeah. footprint so yeah. we've been doing you know a whole range of different programs over the years that address community emissions and a lot of them has been on the energy sector so we've been doing programs like mash which have been promoting solar across households and businesses for for many years now but we're finding that particularly in our regional and rural networks that the 
poles and wires can't handle all of this influx of solar into the streets. So it's creating lots of headaches where households are being told that they can't send their excess solar back into the grid during the day. So there's a real need to address that problem. And one of the solutions for that that's emerging is this idea of community batteries or neighborhood batteries where the batteries sit on the street and either owned by the network or they might be owned by the community themselves or a retailer. And they allow households to pump their energy out in the day when they're maybe at work in normal circumstances, not in COVID. And then when they come home, the battery discharges and it creates that sort of localized energy bank, I suppose. So I think it's a really exciting area because it gets away from this sort of haves and have nots that we've seen with the energy transition, that if you can afford a solar and battery system, you might be better off down the track than someone who can't. Whereas this helps to create a bit more equity in the transition and it opens up interesting models for benefit sharing and how you're going to value that energy that's coming out of the battery. Those who put the energy in, do they get anything more of a reward than those who don't and and we there's all these sort of complexities that we need to work through i don't know if this is just a rumor or how i heard it but i heard something about the federal government looking to charge people for exporting electricity from their solar home rooftops yeah so it's been a pretty difficult debate because it is so complicated and these ideas have actually come out of the more of the social services people like st vincent de paul who have been campaigning for many years that there needs to be better equity in in the solar transition because they've set from their viewpoint those solar households have been highly subsidized with very high feeding tariffs and so from their point of view there's a need to balance it out and actually charge those households when they aren't benefiting the grid so historically i guess for context probably about 10 years ago there were major subsidies to try and encourage people to get solar at all because it was really expensive back then and people weren't convinced of the benefit and so you A, got a discount on the installation and B, quite high rates of return for anything that fed from your house to the grid. But then the uptake was so much more than they thought it was going to be that there was this massive flood of interest. And then they cut the rate. So I was was very lucky. I got in just before the rate dropped, but it went from like 66 cents per kilowatt hour that you fed into the grid Mm -hmm. was paid to me to something like 20 cents or mm-hmm. even less. And now it's even less than and that. And now it's like six, six cents or six something cents minimum. Six cents per kilowatt hour. Like yeah. yeah, so it's very... So yeah. they've been cutting it down. And initially, I mean, as with all things, I think the intention initially was really good just to get more solar. We just needed to encourage the Australian populace to put solar on. But people wanted to. They really wanted to because yeah. we know we're a sunny nation. <laughs> And then when the uptake got huge, they just had to reel it in yeah. quickly. Yeah. So, but you know, now we've got the opposite problem. Now we've, got, we've got a problem now, which I think is worth solar households acknowledging too, is that not every electron from a solar panel is, is useful to the grid. Like it's not always going to be the case that you're creating this energy that's renewable, so therefore it's inherently good. <laughs> it's actually creating problems that, that, yes, the network should have been working to address over the last... 10 years but they hadn't been but i think now we need to sort of say okay well going forward how can we manage this transition so that everyone benefits they're not lumping the burden of paying for network upgrades or paying for the costs of the transition on the poorer households and, and also yeah. just for context with the grid because we've been coal powered for so long we've got this massive one power plant that powers the whole state which affects how all the wires are laid out this is the infrastructure problem yeah, so it's it? never it's always been one way you know energy's flowed one way from the generator through the transmission to the distribution to the household and now we're actually got energy flowing in all directions and it's it requires a pretty 
radical rethink of the grid that we have. The grid itself is a public good. I see that even though it's privatised in Victoria, it's still something that is effectively, if it's designed well, it's a really important asset that we all have. So individually, all of us going off grid as a way to stick it to the retailer or to the network, I don't think is the solution unless you live very fringe of grid. So this is about how do we design a future grid that is as local as possible because there's lots of benefits in being able to be as self-sufficient as you can, I think, at a neighbourhood level. And you're more resilient to, you know, big freak storm events that will happen more and more that we've seen knock down big power lines in South Australia and then leads to blackouts in Victoria. So the more we can localise and see distributed energy happen in these small neighbourhood scales, the better. So I think that's what we're sort of looking at, a whole range of different ways to make that happen. But community batteries are just one exciting new frontier, I think. And it also just makes electricity much more efficient. We get more out of it. When I was interviewing Joe from MASH, I hadn't realised it. And this is the sort of stuff that I think the general populace maybe doesn't really understand the nitty gritty of how our power system works. But the further the electricity travels, the less you get. So it dissipates the further it goes. So to have a local battery that gets fed locally and then bounces back to the local community is probably the most efficient, aside from your own rooftop solar being on your house it's a really efficient way to make electricity happen yeah absolutely mm. yeah you're right it, you know it gets lost through heat and interestingly you know back in the day a lot of these towns powered themselves anyway so it's sort of going back to the future a little bit they might have had a butter factory or something that generated its own energy and had excess that it spread to the town mm. and as electricity arrived in these towns there was no transmission networks because that was a technology that was invented in Germany many, many years later and was brought over to Australia. And that's when things radically changed, where you had this much greater centralised system of generation far away being transported over vast distances and getting lost in the process. So it is a little bit going back to those ideals that we had in the early 1900s. And so I think that's probably what's going to be interesting is just how we can do that at a local level in this really complicated energy system there's all these different players in it at the moment there's all these different regulations and rules about what you can and can't do so you're constantly trying to disrupt the system a little bit to see what is going to stick and some things won't stick and some things will break through and create a whole new way of thinking about things but it's going to be messy and i think it's going to be messy for 10 years we're so aware of how powerful the fossil fuel industry is in terms of influencing our politicians and, and what they decide to create as the rules for all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, you see that time and time again. New energy market rules are introduced by small players and, and they get a lot of momentum behind them. But at the 11th hour, they'll get shut down by two big incumbents and two big fossil fuel retailers. But that those cards are falling and I think we've seen you know more and more that those big players are, are losing out and they've probably never been so vulnerable. So that's sort of an exciting time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just find it fascinating that companies can't figure out that their business model isn't going to work and change. It's been really clear for 20, 30, 40 years that fossil fuels aren't going to be the solution forever and that they're creating huge problems for the world generally in terms of emissions. And these companies have had a lot of time to know that and then maybe become a world leader in wind or solar as well as doing the fossil fuels. But none of them have really done it yeah that's right but it's like if you're a good business person surely that's what you do yeah i i heard an interesting thing the other day about how you know we often see them as recalcitrant or slow but what typically happens is that they often sit back and let a lot of the startups test and disrupt but in the meantime they're, they're always planning in the background 
to do the transition, but they're they're trying to wait it out until those kind of until the technology's un- proven, all the failed and, attempts and have happened, and not through them, and then yeah. they jump in and then they sort of dominate. And I think that's what Apple did, you know, many years ago with smartphones as well. They waited and watched a lot of these innovators and disruptors, and people were like, "Why aren't you moving with the times?" And they and they were, but not in public eye. So it's hopefully that sort of thing is happening, but at the same time, I don't really want it to be. A situation where they all those just they just they, come in and buy up yeah, everything they and do then... have a big wholesale shift and they're they're the big powers going forward it would be nice to be a bit more democratic in how a new energy system works and yeah and i really like what you were saying earlier about the importance of especially as climate change happens the need for localized power sources that are not a hundred percent reliant on a massive grid far far away yeah. and that individual places have even just as a backup these stations that can help keep power up because in i mean in bushfire situations and the heat of that if people don't have power like the heat alone (laughs) like if they can't run their aircon or do whatever it can be deadly yeah i think this is the big arguments for what we do in our region and and what we get buy-in from is this idea of energy resilience or energy independence and we're doing a microgrid project, so looking at two towns in our region, Donald and Tanagala, and they're quite remote and they're very vulnerable to those sort of things happening because they've got one skinny line coming out from Bendigo, hundreds of kilometres that feed them their power. And they've got great anecdotes where they've lost power for two weeks and all their water pumps are down, they're in a drought, they're in, they're in heat waves, they're in a high bushfire risk zone. So all of these ideas about being better adapted to climate change and more resilient to climate change, that's where it folds in and becomes part of the emissions reduction problem too because you're trying to solve all these problems at once. And that's what's interesting about these localization of energy systems is that it can tick all those boxes and hopefully be low carbon and more resilient as yeah. well. And that's it from us today. You've been listening to Saltgrass. My name is Ali Hanley and I have been speaking with Rob Law today from the Central Victorian Greenhouse Alliance, or the CVGA. Don't forget there are links to all of the things discussed, including the CVGA and all of Rob's great creative projects. And any of the previous episodes of Saltgrass that were mentioned, I've got links to all of that in the show notes, in the podcast, and also at saltgrasspodcast.com. For those of you listening on Main FM or 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app. If you can't find Saltgrass on your podcasting app, please contact us and let us know and we'll see what we can do to make it available for you. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. Thanks for listening. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.